Okay. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your host and producer, Janine Maloff. So today we're going to do something a little bit, a um, bit of a diversion from what we normally do. Uh, normally, this show is dedicated to issues of environmental justice. Uh, we've talked a lot about environmental racism long before it was actually in vogue. Um, and today, we're going to combine the two. We've done this a couple of times before, especially with the filibuster. And if you saw the advert, you know, on Facebook, for instance, you saw that basically the headline was, voting rights are required to save the planet. Now, it seems like a no-brainer, but it truly isn't. And to go into this a little further, uh, you know, so I'm kind of winging it today, voting rights in conjunction with ending the filibuster, um, by that I mean the silent filibuster, are absolutely critical and necessary for environmental rights to, uh, they're necessary to end minority rule of what is called corporate capture. Uh, and corporate capture refers to just what you think it would. Basically the fact that large multinational corporations, as well as uh, companies that are privately owned, say by Charles Koch, they have basically not only way too large a say in what happens in our country and in our government, they essentially own our politicians. And as much fun as it would be to blame it all on the Republicans, there are far too many corporate Democrats that also take what we call campaign contributions, which is just legalized bribery, truth be told, from the same corporate entities. And when I say corporate Democrats, along with Republicans, you can call them corporate Democrats, you can call them blue dogs, you can call them moderates, you know, the white moderate that Dr. King really did hate. Um, you know, we saw the other day in celebration of, of Dr. King's legacy, um, Senator Kirsten Sinema retweet, tweeted a King quote, but she left out all the important context. You know, and when Dr. King called out white moderates, what he, he was calling out people like Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and yes, Nancy Pelosi and others by basically saying that their inaction enables the Klansmen and so on and so forth. And in essence means that the white moderate in some ways is worse than a Klansman because if we didn't have those cowards enabling the worst part of our society, then people like the Klan wouldn't be able to get away with half the things they got away with. I'm just saying. So this is also part of the series that we're going to run on both shows, both on Progressive News Network, on our Sunday show, as well as on the Environmental Justice Report. And it really is, it, it, it really is a series on what I call corporate capture. Uh, there's also going to be coverage in uh, articles that I submit to Buzzflash, where you can find my my latest writing as well. Uh, and we're talking about corporate capture. This is part one, and it really deals with the, ro the role of a rogue Supreme Court attacking voting rights, and yes, steered by John Roberts. So let's get into it. We're going to be talking about voting rights as well as the filibuster. So days, as I said before, days after the Martin Luther King holiday, I became 
truly aware that in order for any honest environmental legislation to pass and pass in a way that it had any substantive way to enforce those rules, we, we have to pass universal voting rights that absolutely no state legislature can rescind. All right, but the problem is that our nation has been overcome by corporate capture and as a byproduct of that event, our nation, the United States, is characterized by what can only be called wholesale corruption, which frankly would make the Tammany Hall crooks look like rank amateurs. The fact these politicians, are, a lot of them are attorneys, is only worse. Frankly, they should all lose their law license, in my opinion. But our right to vote and, our, and have our votes actually counted is paramount. And right now, we're going to discuss two things. We're going to discuss how the Supreme Court, under the stewardship of Chief Justice John Roberts, has actively worked to undermine voting rights that were enshrined originally in the Voting Rights Act 1965. Um, but we're also going to talk about, again, the filibuster. So this all ties in together with environmental justice. I mean, think about it for a minute. How in the world can you have meaningful environmental protection laws when you know that you can't get them passed, when you know the people that are in office of both parties, the Republicans, the corporate Democrats, with perhaps the exception of the leftist um, progressive wing, that it's not going to get passed. And the chances of too many progress of many more progressives getting elected is slim. All right, because once again, you can go to vote, but Lord knows if your vote's going to count. That's the problem. And these attacks on our voting rights really are occurring with surgical precision. They're not as ham-handed. They're not as obvious as the as the Jim Crow of say, you know, 70 years ago. This is more surgically precise. So it's a little harder to prove. And the bigots come in all types of people, including those that maintain a law license. So let's go into this. First, we have the Supreme Court and their role in undermining voting rights and ensuring corporate capture. And we're going to talk about the Shelby case. And this is a, a piece that was in Vox by Ian Milheiser, who does phenomenal work. Excuse me. Get a little sip of tea here. And so this was written and published in September of 2020. All right, but it still holds true. And the headline is Chief Justice Roberts' lifelong crusade against voting rights explains he has fought to undermine voting rights his entire career. Now, there are some in the Democratic Party in particular that would be shocked because when John Roberts was first nominated for the Supreme Court and nominated specifically for the role of Chief Justice by George W. Bush, he was presented by the corporate mainstream press as this, this moderate, fair-minded, so on and so forth. Apparently, the corporate press didn't bother to do their homework. John Roberts is anything but. In fact, this article goes into the fact that when John Roberts was an attorney, and he just, one of his first jobs was he had completed a clerkship with Justice William Rehnquist. Now, Justice Rehnquist on the Supreme Court 
has got he he was one of the most racist Supreme Court justices in history, second only to maybe the infamous Judge Taney, uh, who ruled on the Dred Scott decision. And here, John Roberts, he's 26 years old. He finished this um, this clerkship with with Rehnquist. And then he went on to become an aide in the Department of Justice to Attorney General William French Smith. And one of his first little tasks for then Attorney General William French Smith was making the case against the Civil the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, if John Roberts had actually a sense of true justice for all people, regardless of race, even though it was a high-profile job, he would have had the integrity to tell his boss, you know what, I think you need to get someone else. Just do. So what had happened was, um, this was 1981, 81-82, and the House had passed legislation extending the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, a lot of people don't realize is the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had a time limit on it for certain provisions. It just did. So in that way, it was kind of stupidly written. So periodically, they had to extend it. And this was one of those times. Now, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, for those of you who don't know, did dismantle many of the Jim Crow laws that had been on the books, and that's according to Vox.com. And one of the key provisions had been weakened by a 1980 Supreme Court decision, um, which basically attacked one of its key provisions, okay? Now, there was a filibuster, ironically, a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate that had co-sponsored the same bill to actually extend the voting rights and shore it up and make sure that this Voting Rights Bill of 1965 maintained its, you know, its strength. Keep in mind, at that time, the Democrats were using it. But Roberts, it wasn't just that John Roberts was doing the work of his boss. He was truly, truly enraged by the entire thing of a voting rights act. In fact, uh, John Roberts wrote to his boss on the seriousness of this in governmentinfo.gov, quote, Something must be done to educate the senators on the seriousness of this problem, okay? And what he's talking about is that in another memo, he argued that the bill that's advancing, which would, again, reinforce the Voting Rights Act, was, quote, not only constitutionally suspect, but also contrary to the most fundamental tenets of the legislative process on which the laws of this country are based. Um, you have to understand something. John Roberts, like a lot of Republicans, and frankly, a lot of white men, I'll just say it, they care more about the legislative process remaining intact than they do about the legislative process reflecting actual justice. And why do they do that? Why do they concentrate on the form over the actual effect, function and effect? because that forum maintains the status quo, which keeps white men, affluent white men, in charge. But 
thank God Roberts early John Roberts' early crusade against extending the Voting Rights Act in the early 80s did end in failure. Reagan signed off on it. Uh, keep in mind, those of you that have heard the argument that Ronald Reagan wasn't a racist, okay? He was good on socialist issues. He was a fiscal conservative. Not true. Ronald Reagan described the Voting Rights Act as, quote, humiliating to the South, and that's according to a document by the New York Times in 2007. But Reagan signed off on it. And while that was happening, John Roberts was rising in government, and he kept going in government until George W. Bush made the unwise decision of making John Roberts the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 2005. Now, there are some that will argue John Roberts wasn't so bad. You know, he saved part of the Affordable Care Act. He, you know, cast a vote to preserve the constitutional right to an abortion, yada, yada, yada. So what? The fact that, <coughs> excuse me, folks, is not in good voice today. <coughs> Love asthma. Okay. But these are just surface things. John Roberts has a foul record on voting rights. In fact, his record on voting rights and fighting against voting rights legislation, it would make the KKK proud. He is one of those, well, I wouldn't call him moderate, but one of those whites that Dr. King would have despised. John Roberts got his opportunity in 2013 where he dismantled the Voting Rights Act because what he did was he dismantled the enforcement mechanism of which there were two. And that was in the case known as Shelby or Shelby County v. Holder. And John Roberts did it in a couple ways. First of all, you know, he's joined decisions that have made it much harder for voting rights plaintiffs to prove they were victims of discrimination. Um, so let's look at what he did. <clears throat> so the Voting Rights Act originally applied to states with a history of racist voter discrimination. And as a way to ensure that people of, color, people of color would be able to vote and vote dependably, these states were listed and they had to pre-clear any new voting laws, voting-related laws, no matter how small, they had to pre-clear it with the Justice Department or with federal judges in D.C. And that's regards, it's called the preclearance provision. Now, it's really important, all right? This way, the South can get to sneak in these little voter, these sneaky voter suppression tactics, all right? Because the federal court would have caught it or the Justice Department, and they would say, no, you can't do it. Now, again, when the Voting Rights Act was, oh, was passed, it was initially scheduled to expire especially the preclearance provision that is five years after the law was signed in 1965. So then in 70, when Richard Nixon was president, he had to, Congress had to decide whether they were going to extend the preclearance requirements. And so Congress did choose to extend preclearance in 1975, in 82, and in 2006. And each time it was truthfully signed by a Republican president, 
Um, that was only because those people were terrified of being called racist. It didn't look good. It's, you know, this was before the era of Trump where people now wear their racism and other bigotries as their moronic red badge of courage. So once again, Nixon came up with his own plan uh, that would have weakened the Voting Rights Act, but ultimately he signed the, a more expansive Voting Rights Act renewal into law. All right. So now, here's what happened. Two years before the renewal of the Voting Rights Act in 1982, we have to back up a little bit. There was another Supreme Court case, and this was the city of Mobile versus Bolden. And this rendered one of the enforcement mechanisms of the Voting Rights Act essentially impotent. All right? So in 1980, the Supreme Court case of city of Mobile versus Bolden basically interpreted one of the enforcement mechanisms of the Voting Rights Act, namely um, Section 2, uh, they cut it down, okay? So there's two parts of the Voting Rights Act that enforce your, you know, enforce the act itself, and that's Section 5 and Section 2. It's a way of stopping racist voting laws. So Section 5 laid out the preclearance regimen, which I talked about a few minutes ago. Section 2, a little different, Section 2 allowed voting rights uh, plaintiffs to bring lawsuits challenging racist laws that were already in effect. So a little tweak on it, all right? So let's go back again because it's all types of, you can't get, uh, you can't get good environmental laws and environmental regulations if you can't elect the people, you know, that are actually going to push for this. And you can't elect these people if your vote's not counted. So the Voting Rights Act, there was a case, 1980, City of Mobile versus Bolden, the two enforcement mechanisms in the Voting Rights Act to, pre to prevent these racist Jim Crow laws. One, Section 5, was the preclearance regimen, which said if, they, if a state known for racist voting patterns, um, racist voting laws, if they wanted to change even the slightest little detail of anything, uh, any election, law, reg, whatever, they had to clear it either through the Department of Justice at the federal level or with a federal judge in D.C. But that says nothing, of, that deals with new laws. That says nothing about racist voting laws that are already in existence. Section 2 took care of that. Section 2 allowed uh, people that felt that they were victimized by a racist voting law in those states, they could bring lawsuits challenging those laws that were already in effect. So what did the City of Mobile case do? The Mobile case basically, quote, established that Section 2 plaintiffs must show that lawmakers who enacted a particular voting-related law acted with racially dis racial discriminatory motivation. Now, that's a really high bar to meet. You want, if you think that, for instance, you were a black woman and you went to go vote in Atlanta, Georgia, and you feel in your precinct, you know, they were, they, there were already laws uh, on the books that made it more difficult for you to vote, and you felt that that was racist because it affected, you know, certain groups of people, certain communities of color. Now, because the Mobile Act it wasn't just enough to prove that the effect was racist. 
you actually have to prove that those who wrote that voter suppression law that you think is racist, that's already in effect, you have to prove that the legislators that wrote that were um, acted with racially discriminatory motivation. Well, how can you know someone's motivation? All right. And you have to remember, too, especially in the southern states, the legislators that write these voter suppression laws, they're very good at drafting legislation that on the surface looks racially neutral, but it still has the effect of disenfranchising voters of color. Now, why is this Voting Rights Act of 1965 and voter suppression that really affects voters of color, why is, why is it so important to environmental issues and a lot of other issues? Because more often than not, voters of color have a history of voting more progressive, voting at least for Democrats. They definitely vote against Republicans and against corporate interests. So the two issues do go hand in hand. So this Supreme Court case may effectively neutralize Section 2, made it much more difficult. All right. Um, So this, there was a lot of pro, there was a lot of backlash about this, all right, about the mobile decision. And basically, Voting Rights Journalist Ari Berman wrote that Roberts wrote upwards of 25 memos opposing an effects test for Section 2, according to Politico.com. Um, he drafted talking points, speeches, and op-eds for senior justice department officials opposing this amendment. Okay, let me back up a little bit. My bad. So after the mobile case, which literally said you had to prove racist intent on the part of legislators that wrote, wrote a voter suppression law that would have the effect of disenfranchising voters of color, the liberals in Congress in 1980, as well as voting rights advocates, worked really hard, and they, and they created an amendment to the Voting Rights Act that would essentially nullify the mobile decision, and it would section two intact. And that amendment banned any voting practice that results that results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. End quote. So that amendment essentially prove that even if you couldn't prove racist intent, if a particular law had a negative effect that was disparate on voters of color, then it nullified the mobile decision. And John Roberts fought to kill this amendment. He, he drafted all these talking points, speeches, not that, and you would have thought it was the end of the world the way he reacted. Um, but the opposition the Section 2 amendment did fizzle. Um, and that was largely because these Republicans were getting very nervous about the publicity. Senator Trent Lott, who was a Republican in Mississippi, told Reagan in October of 81 that conservative lawmakers feared that, quote, anyone who seeks to change an expansive voting rights renewal that has already passed the House will risk being branded as racist, end quote. And, well, that's because a lot of the Republicans are racist. Let's just put it where it is. So Reagan signed the bill, which extended preclearance 
for another quarter century and that also um, included that amendment which trashed the mobile decision. Okay. And again, in 06, President Bush um, signed off on the Voting Rights Act as well. So you think, okay, this is fun, right? But in 2013, there was a man named Edward Bloom, who is a very rich anti-civil rights activist. God, what kind of scum do you have to be to do that? And he complained in a 2006 National Review article um, that, quote, Republicans don't want to be branded as hostile to minorities, especially just months from an election, end quote. So Mr. Bloom was apparently the driving force behind the Shelby case. And that's the one that really gutted preclearance in 2013. And that is as documented by Salon.com, an article called The Right-Wing Supreme Court Whisperer. This is, again, another example of a very wealthy person abusing their wealth privilege. There's sip of tea, but no shock there. So once again, the Shelby case came up. And this was, you know, Justice Ant, the late Antonin Scalia, you know, had to speak up. Now, keep in mind, Scalia's the guy who did the Citizens United decision in 2010, a few years before. Scalia's been held up as this wonderful constitutional scholar. But I would defy conservatives to prove it. You know, a lot of the stuff Scalia said, he just made up stuff. That's all he did. He just made up stuff, even though he kept saying the Constitution was not a living document, it was, quote, dead, dead, dead. Apparently, original intent and textualism and all this stuff only works for conservatives when it works in their favor. So, anyway, I digress. Um, Scalia, in all his tone-deaf bigotry, uh, gave voice to the frustration in the oral argument of, Shel of the Shelby case. Scalia claimed that um, the Voting Rights Act was, quote, a perpetuation of racial entitlement. And whenever society adopts racial entitlement, it is very difficult to get them through the normal political processes. Scalia went on to say, quote, I don't think there's anything to be gained by any senator to vote against continuation of this act. And I am fairly confident that it will be reenacted in perpetuity unless the court can say it does not comport with the Constitution, end quote. And that phrase, perpetuation of racial entitlement, that's accredited to Scalia before anybody screams, uh, slander, defamation, whatever. You can find it at Supreme Court, uh, supremecourt.gov backslash oral arguments, backslash argument transcripts, backslash 2012-1296. All right, get over yourself. He said it. Now, keep in mind, it takes a special type of foul racist to call something like the Voting Rights Act a perpetuation of racial entitlement. Because all the Voting Rights Act did was correct the injustices of Jim Crow. And it did so with the Section 5 and Section 2. They needed those enforcement mechanisms because the South had a history of being totally untrustworthy. I mean, that's all there is to it. But 
Scalia was obviously vicious about it. John Roberts, little, he's a little sneakier about it. Okay? Roberts apparently didn't see, apparently John Roberts doesn't think there's that much racism in the U.S. anymore. And he based his, he based the ruling on his limited experience and limited opinion. So when, when Chief Justice John Roberts goes home in the evening, you know, I'm sure he drives through the gated community and, you know, because he doesn't see many black people and doesn't see many blacks or black people or brown people being harassed by cops or whatever or being profiled, he doesn't think racism is a problem anymore. John Roberts is exactly the type of person that Dr. King condemns. All right. And according to John Roberts in 2013, the Shelby case, he thought that preclearance, in other words, requiring states to get some sort of federal permission slip, either from the Department of Justice or from a federal judge, before they could change anything about their voting laws, was, quote, an extraordinary measure. And he claimed it was an extraordinary measure adopted to, quote, address an extraordinary problem, okay, end quote. But almost a half century after the Voting Rights Act came into law, Roberts went on to say, quote, the conditions that originally justified these measures no longer characterize voting in the covered jurisdictions, end quote. And he based that on the fact that black voter turnout, quote, has come to exceed white voter turnout in five of the six states originally covered by Section 5. So he went on to say preclearance did its job. There's no, we don't need it anymore. Okay? That's what John Roberts said. And the fact is what Roberts claimed isn't just tone deaf. It's damn asinine. I'm just going to say it, all right? And, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RDG, in all her, you know, her humble, soft voice, I just love what she came up with next. She literally called out John Roberts as, an, as a hypocrite and an idiot. And I call it the RDG umbrella quote, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissenting opinion contained the following quote, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. End quote. That's it. You know, I feel like saying, bye, Felicia. So it was a really good idea. Now, there's another problem with what the Supreme Court did in the Shelby case. The Shelby case is really incredibly important. I'd say second only to Citizens United. And, and the problem lies, according to Ian Milheiser, that these are his arguments, is where in the Constitution is the, the Supreme Court given the authority to decide if the U.S. is too racist or not that racist anymore so they don't need this? Where is that authority? Nowhere. There's nothing in the Constitution that even remotely suggest that the Supreme Court gets to decide whether the U.S. is racist enough, according to Milheiser, to, quote, justify extraordinary measures to halt that racism. In fact, uh, in this article, um, excuse me, Milheiser goes on to explain that the 15th Amendment clearly states that the right to vote, quote, 
shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The 15th Amendment also, quote, gives Congress, quote, the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So Milheiser is saying that, you know, he's granting maybe Roberts was right. The nation had made sufficient racial progress to either cut down preclearance or whatever, but Congress disagreed with him. And the text of the Constitution suggests that Congress is the one that has the final word. Okay? There's also another reason to doubt that what John Roberts said is ludicrous. And that is that um, while John Roberts is at least partially correct to state that Southern states don't engage in not only wholesale disenfranchisement of African-Americans, but not, not in that ham-handed obvious way, he's wrong because there is a subtler, and according to um, Neilheiser, a subtler and more insidious form of racism that pervades our elections. Okay? And I would say it's not just in the southern states, it's, it's in the west, it's here in the Midwest. All right? I don't know what USA John Roberts lives in, but I had colleagues when I was teaching in the city of St. Louis um, that black colleagues that would joke about, oh, yeah, my polling place changed on election day. And these were people that always voted. Some of them did not drive. Public transportation here is hideous. And, yes, it took them a large part of an entire day to cast their vote. How is that not voter suppression when little white suburbs of St. Louis County, especially in the more expensive areas, go in, they maybe wait 10 minutes, and they're out? Obvious voter suppression, but it's done in a sneakier way. Basically, what they do is they make it harder to vote. You know, according to law, you're supposed to, if you're working that day, you're supposed to be given time off from work to cast your vote. I know for a fact there's a lot of employers that just totally disregard it. Um, once again, North Carolina, you know, in 2013, the GOP-controlled legislature, they already had an omnibus bill ready to go the day after the Shelby case was decided, and it it uh, entailed several provisions that made it harder to cast a ballot. And, you know, it was done with such surgical precision that the effect was it really targeted African Americans. All right? Whether it's not enough voting machines. All right, why, why is it? Again, you can go out into the very expensive suburbs here in St. Louis County of Chesterfield, Ladue, Clayton, whatever, and they have more than enough voting machines, and few people trickle in, even on federal election day. But you go into the city, especially in racially segregated areas where you know, majority black, black people that live in that area, there's never enough voting machines, or they break down, and people are waiting for hours on end. How is this not voter suppression? Of course it is. So, you know, basically what North Carolina did when they 
they passed this omnibus law. They, they, they had the, let me back up a little. I tend to stutter a bit when I get upset, and I'm getting upset. So day after the Shelby decision, the omnibus voting bill in North Carolina was presented and passed, GOP-controlled legislature. And here's the sneaky part. Before that new law in North Carolina was enacted, um, state lawmakers, quote, requested data on the use by race of a number of voting practices, end quote. And then they used the data to ensure the law would likely discourage black voters from casting a ballot, um, but having a smaller impact on whites. Uh, give you an example, the North Carolina law didn't require voters to show photo ID, um, but it only permitted, it didn't require voter ID, but it only permitted voters to use, quote, those types of photo ID disproportionately held by whites and excluded those disproportionately held by African Americans. So for instance, types of ID that were not accepted under the new North Carolina law were government employee IDs, which has a picture, public assistance IDs, student IDs have a picture. Um, and that was another way, you know, they'd have to go back again it just makes voting very difficult for people of color. So the North Carolina bill also eliminated the two Sunday voting days where churches would, you know, put people on a bus with what they call the souls to the polls uh, with early voting. Okay. And the partisan benefits were clear. The appeals court, because it did go to court, um, explained that, quote, a restriction of voting mechanisms and procedures the most heavily affect African Americans will predictably redound to the benefit of one political party and to the disadvantage of the other. Okay, and those those voting um, those voting patterns are quite quite obvious. All right, uh, here in Missouri, in the congressional first district, the congressperson is Cory Bush. Um, first district is predominantly uh, most of the voters are a community of color. There are, are whites there, but it's, it's it, it still is majority, um, majority black. Subsequently, a Republican has absolutely no chance of winning. So whoever wins the primary in the first congressional district is automatically going to win the election. That's just the way it is. It, the voting patterns are that obvious. So... Again, John Roberts was on this, this crusade against the Voting Rights Act, even before the Shelby case. And it keeps going on. All right, so let's move on. So what are we gonna talk about here? We've got basically a Voting Rights Act that has been essentially nullified all right uh, once the shelby case came around and basically tossed out pre-clearance there was essentially no way to um, to enforce it that's why you see this flurry of voter suppression bills going into those states because again they can get away with it so basically millheiser comes up with um, 
saw here. My bad. So this is what we're dealing with here. Sorry, folks. It gets kind of scattered, but that's what we're dealing with. John Roberts has basically dedicated his entire career to destroying the Voting Rights Act. And while he may not be as virulent or racist as a KKKer, the effect is just as lethal when it comes to voting rights for people of color. And the Shelby case is the perfect example. So without effective voting rights at the federal level, we have no chance because you have to remember every state sets their own voting procedures and sometimes every precinct, every county, and it's very inconsistent. Um, so now we have a situation where not only are the voting rights in jeopardy, but then there's this instance of, will our votes actually be counted? You know, January 6th was all about tossing out those votes. The majority of cases filed by the Trump administration were for the express purpose of, if they couldn't find the votes legitimately, they wanted to toss it out and have the Republican-dominated legislatures decide who the electors would be. That's what they wanted. So without voting rights, we have no chance of electing people that are going to listen and, and push for environmentally sound, uh, environmentally sound laws. It's just not going to happen. And even if we elect them, we see right now what's happening. You know, the squad's been fighting like hell, but we see that because of the filibuster in the Senate, every decent bill goes there to die. Now, I called several different offices routinely, actually, and I remind them that there's nothing in the Constitution that says the filibuster is legitimate. And I asked them, you know, like Roy Blunfuck, how can they justify it? And they say, well, the Senate gets to pick their own rules. And when I countered with, yes, but that doesn't mean the Senate gets to pick rules that are contrary to the law or contrary to the Constitution, they just start stuttering. So how do we get rid of or at least reform the silent filibuster? Well, I've talked about this piece before. This was an op-ed written by uh, Professor Erwin Shermerinsky, who is the uh, dean of the UC Bar Berkeley Law School, and Professor Burton Newborn at the NYU School of Law. And they published this in the LA Times, uh, March 22nd of 21. And the headline is very self-explanatory. The filibuster is unconstitutional. Here's how Vice President Harris can take it on. Vice President Kamala Harris, in presiding over the Senate, has power to change the filibuster rule as Nixon did. Now, a little background here, okay? As much as I despise Richard Nixon, when I when I was in high school, I'm dating myself now, my cheat, I put in the yearbook one year that my prime ambition in life was be was to be at the number one spot of the Nixon enemies list. But it turns out Nixon, when he was vice president under Eisenhower, did one decent thing, maybe for the wrong reason, but he did one decent thing, and that was 
he wrote two advisory opinions that are housed at the Wilson Center. And you can look it up yourself. And he basically said that a major part of the Senate's filibuster rule that required then two-thirds to amend it was unconstitutional. And he was really determined. In fact, what he wrote in these advisory opinions was reaffirmed uh, by other vice presidents, Democrat Hubert Humphrey and Republican Nelson Rockefeller. In fact, there was these two advisory opinions that allowed the democratically controlled Senate in 2013 and the Republican controlled Senate in 2017 to eliminate filibusters for all executive and judicial nominees and just have a simple majority vote, okay? Now, these two law professors say that Vice President Harris has the same power to just go there and say, look, the current version of the filibuster is unconstitutional because of the 60 vote supermajority rule to enact legislation. And because it demands a supermajority rule, it's unconstitutional as it denies equal suffrage in the Senate in violation of Article 5 of the Constitution. Okay? Basically what they're saying is the current filibuster or any silent filibuster where you have to have a supermajority to end it, all right? Anything other than a simple majority is unconstitutional because it denies equal representation, equal voting rights in the Senate, and that goes in direct violation of Article 5. And they go on to say that the Senate already is undemocratic. And it's probably, even though, even though the way the Senate is apportions representation, you know, two senators for every state, that in theory should be unconstitutional. Even though it's written into the Constitution that way, that was a compromise. But that compromise basically is in direct violation of the whole idea of equal representation. So to give you an example, Wyoming has approximately 580,000 people but they get the same number of senators as California, who has some 40 million people. And if you look at it mathematically, essentially that says that a voter in Wyoming has 65 times more voting power in the Senate through their senators than a person living in California. And that the filibuster rule makes that, that inequality even worse. And they go on to say that under the 60-vote rule, and this is according to the Brennan Center for Justice, some 41 senators representing about a third of the population can outweigh 59 senators representing two-thirds of the population. That's definitely in violation of the whole, uh, the whole uh, principle of one person, one vote. Still allowed to stay in place because the Constitution says the Senate has the right to correct the the Senate has the right to establish their own rules. But the Constitution doesn't say that the Senate, in the establishment of their rules, has the right to break the law or to violate the principles in the Constitution. Otherwise, you could argue that Mitch McConnell would have the right to allow senators to have their own personal slaves because it's the Senate rules, even though the 13th Amendment has outlawed slavery. 
Mitch McConnell could also say theoretically using McConnell's own reasoning that the, the Senate could decide that, that female senators' votes won't count, and it would hold true because, again, it's the Senate rules, even though that's in violation of the 19th Amendment. Again, this is the problem with the entire situation. So we have an undemocratic, uh, undemocratic uh, situation in the Senate. I mean, well, let's face it. The only reason every state received two senators was part of the compromise. But when they wrote the Constitution, that compromise is in direct violation of those pretty, uh, those pretty principles espoused in the Constitution and in the preamble. How is this equal representation? It's not. So this one other argument that these two professors offer, Vice President Harris could come down and she could rule that the current version of the Senate filibuster essentially represents an unconstitutional 60-vote supermajority requirement in violation of Article 5, uh, the 17th Amendment, and, quote, the constitutional presumption of majority rule. It basically grants the minority veto rights that the Constitution never granted them. Now, if Harris were to do that, it would trigger two possible events. The full Senate could try to overrule Harris by a majority vote. That's not necessarily a bad thing, though, because then the senators would no longer be debating the filibuster as political policy. Now it would be a constitutional question. This is something that I think needs to happen. Does Vice President Harris, does she have the, I think she has the courage to do it. Does she have the integrity to do it? Or will she be ruled by her ambition? I think she's going to be ruled by her ambition. All right. She's a corporate Democrat. Let's just knock it off, okay? Yes, it, her presence there is historic, but it's historic on a symbolic level. It's a surface-type issue, but her presence there has changed nothing fundamentally. It's changed nothing substantively. It just hasn't. Corporatists still win. So let's move on because we know the filibuster has to be gone. We have to have voting rights that no state can rescind through trickery and deceit with voter suppression bills of all different types, and we need to end the filibuster. Okay, that's it. So let's look at this. Okay, let's look at what we possibly could do. So there, the Brennan Center had a report titled The Case Against the Filibuster. And the Brennan Center for Justice is, I believe, out of NYU Law School. Now, I look at one part of it. There's a section that's entitled, How Can the Filibuster Be Ended? Well, they have some things listed here. One, you can change the rules. Two, there's the nuclear option. Other proposed reforms, shifting the burden of proof to the minority and lowering the threshold to invoke cloture as well as requiring senators to hold the floor again. So let's talk about what all that means. 
So let me get a little tea here. First of all, change the rules. And the most direct way to do that is to amend what's called Senate Rule 22. Now, the Senate is different from the House because the Senate is called a continuing body. You know, the House changes, they have elections, they're elected every two years. The reason why the Senate is considered a continuing body is because two-thirds of its members carry over from one Congress to the next because they have six-year terms. And as a result, the rules of the Senate also continue on. But what a lot of people don't know is that Senate rules can be changed the most easily on the first legislative day. Now, there is a two-thirds supermajority or 66 votes that are required to change the rules. <clears throat> Did Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer attempt to change the rules? No. The other option is the nuclear option. Nuclear option's been used before. You've heard mainstream media talk about it, and it's very melodramatic, but they don't explain what it means. So <clears throat> the major nuclear option means majority leader can use this, basically the, a non-debatable motion to bring a bill for a vote, and then they raise what's called a point of order that closure can be achieved with a majority vote. Then the presiding officer would rule against the point of order. That could be overturned by a simple majority vote. And the effect being filibusters of legislation would no longer be the rule. Okay. If you get the nuclear option, all motions and votes could then pass with a simple majority. That's how the Senate ended the 60 vote closure requirement for judicial nominations. Now, the problem right now is they can't get a majority, simple majority vote, the Democrats, because of Senators Manchin and Senators Cinema. All right, we just can't. Um, and until the president does something about Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, I would say LBJ style, Linda Bates Johnson, this isn't going to change because Senator Manchin. He makes too much money basically just taking what are legalized bribes uh, from corporate coffers. And Senator Cinema the same way. Although for Senator Cinema, I think she really enjoys rubbing people's noses in it. I, I still remember the day she voted against raising the minimum wage and she did her thumbs down and her little curtsy. And I thought, this woman is an ass. That's all there is to it. She is an ignorant ass. So, once again, when I say the LBJ option, that refers to um, Lyndon Baines Johnson, like President Biden, had been in the Senate for a long time. And as the saying goes, he knew where the bodies were buried, metaphorically speaking. He used the carrot and the stick, and he wasn't afraid to use the stick. But were me? I would be investigating both Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, and seeing if they have, you know, some skeletons because they're holding up everything. All right. Anyway, there are other pro proposed reforms to the filibuster, shifting the burden to the minority. And what that means is right now, under Senate rules, you have to have 60 votes to end debate on a bill so you can actually have a vote. And 
And that's called invoking cloture. Now, there's a proposal for reform that would instead require a minority of the Senate to sustain debate with 40 votes. Now, that would be a marginal improvement because um, opponents of legislation would have to do the work of wrestling up votes. That's a burden that now falls on the majority. All right. Right now, they don't have to do much at all. You could also lower the threshold to invoke cloture. And that would be just basically lowering the magic, magic number from 60 to 55 or whatever. Again, even if we got a simple majority, which was what we really need, that it should be majority rule, you know, the problem with Senators Manchin and Cinema. All right. So this is something that we're just stuck with, you know. You could require senators to hold the floor. This is something we could do again. Senators Manchin and Cinema are the problem. You know, anybody who's seen the old movie, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, it used to be that the filibuster was basically you had to, de you, you had to drag the debate on. You had, to, you had to stand. You had to remain standing and remain speaking until you dropped. But now all they have to do, just the threat of a filibuster is enough to say, I'm invoking the filibuster. They don't have to stand. They don't have to do anything. In fact, what happens is um, they just they just stop debating. They just don't do anything. The bill that they filibuster goes into a big pile, and the public doesn't even see what's happening because once again, it just gets ignored. If this sounds confusing, it's because it is. And this has been made needlessly confusing. Personally, I think that our legal system needs to be forced to actually write things in plain language, clear sentences, no jargon. That's it. I find it absolutely ridiculous that we're told ignorance of the law is no excuse, but the law is written in such arcane jargon that you have to hire somebody with a three-year postgraduate degree to define what the jargon means. It's asinine. So we've got several things here, and the fact is this. Until we have voting rights, until the voting rights is absolutely no state legislature can uh, rescind through trickery, deceit, voter suppression, whatever, until we end the filibuster, we can't then elect enough people to push for environmentally sound policies. That's it. We're stuck. I want to save the planet as much as everybody else, but we have to have voting rights. Everybody has to get on board here. And as horrible as the GOP is, we can't afford to trust the corporate uh, corporate Dems either. Keep in mind, both Pelosi and Schumer, and yes, President Biden, were initially against reforming the filibuster. And you think, why? Why do they want Republicans to get their way? Because they get campaign contributions, a.k.a. legalized bribes, from the same corporate entities. Furthermore, these corporate Democrats get to hide behind the Republicans and behind the skirts of Manchin and Cinema, as they just continually obstruct any progress. 
you know, corporate te- Democrats like Pelosi or Senator Tester or Mark Kelly or um, Chuck Schumer or Kirsten Gillibrand, whatever, they can all say, look, we voted for these reformist laws, but by golly, it got filibusters, nothing we can do about it. We're being played, people. So, again, voting rights are environmental rights. We have to have both. And at the end of the day, we have a U.S. Senate that is, by its very nature, undemocratic and not just hostile to majority rule, but views majority rule with such incredible contempt, it's beyond the pale. When I called Roy Blunt's office and talked to a staffer in D.C., and I brought this up, they said, well, the filibuster serves to prevent wild swings, you know, in public law. Okay. They're implying that those of us that are the dirty, unwashed masses are really just too stupid to know what is going to be best for the country. They're literally indicting the right to vote. That's it. Acting like basically aristocracy, because it's an aristocracy that was built by money as opposed to bloodlines. And the very idea, additionally, though, that a small, a state as small as Wyoming with less than 600,000 people receives the same amount of representation as California with 40 million people is not only unjust, it's absurd. This disparity, it grants a state like Wyoming approximately 65 times the numerical representation as a heavily populated state. Now, these two issues, the filibuster and the undemocratic nature of the Senate itself, coupled with the infamous Citizens United decision that declares corporations as people, have reduced the idea of equal representation to the level of bitter insults. Citizens United, as I said, declared corporations to be persons with all the rights and privileges of a person. Now, I thought about that for a minute, and I realized that Scalia, Scalia kind of walked into it. He didn't complete the logical sequence. The logical sequence is if, if a corporation, let's, let's, let's start, apart from the ludicrous nature of the initial premise of corporate personhood. Scalia missed something, namely, again, let's look at this. If you accept the idea of corporate personhood, and if you do have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you really cheap, but if you accept the idea of corporate personhood, and if you accept the idea that these legally created persons are real, then these legally created corporate persons should be required to carry the same legal responsibilities as naturally born persons or biological persons. Therefore, then, if you accept the premise that a corporation is legally a person, then these corporate persons must be stripped of any and all limited liability privileges as no person, whether created by legal fiction or biologically born, has any legitimate right to such privileged status. In fact, the idea of limited liability itself is a created fiction, which grants the LLC privileges over the rest of us. So I wonder how long the Citizens United decision would stand if some smart lawyers, smart progressive lawyers, went to court and demanded that corporate persons 
um, that have implemented decisions which cost lives had their limited liability status, both civilly and criminally, permanently rescinded. It's something to consider. So that's our big story. I, I admit it was kind of choppy. Uh, bottom line is we can't have environmental laws that have any any enforceability or any credence if we don't if we can't have our votes counted. If we don't have voting rights, it's not going to happen. We don't get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. We can elect we can elect a bigger majority of progressives in the Senate, but unless we have a 60 vote block, we will get nothing done. And it is so that form of the filibuster is unconstitutional. It just is. It grants states, um, it grants minority a, basically an unconstitutional veto. Just does. And then look at the Citizens United decision that started this all. Once again, if you take, if all these conservatives take Scalia's word for it, and corporations are persons, and persons not only have rights, but they also have responsibilities. And if that's the case, then these corporate persons have no right to any limited liability protection. Somehow I have a feeling if there were legislation that gave corporations a choice, either either basically revoke corporate personhood or lose your limited liability um, standing, I think a lot of them would choose to just get rid of personhood and retain their limited liability protection. It's just the thought. Well, now we have our jackass of the week, and this is shared. It's so easy by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. These two political jackasses have obviously been influenced peddling. Uh, technically, it's legal because of the Citizens United decision, but it's still influence peddling. Plenty of evidence that's been documented to show that both of these senators are essentially taking bribes for their vote to keep, especially to keep the filibuster intact. There is absolutely no reason for these two alleged Democrats to vote against reforming the filibuster. Now, Senator Sinema's mansion, let's put the mansion at least, had the smarts to just make a clear statement and then walk away. But Sinema, she could not resist the, the, tempt, the temptation, excuse me, she couldn't resist the temptation, that is, to get in front of the mic and the cameras are rolling. And she's got her little crucifix necklace on you know, instead of her FU ring, and she's just practically coming to tears because, you know, she believes in, in, in voting rights, but she also believes in following the rules of the Senate like there are some sort of 11th commandment sent by God above. She's like saying, but the, the real disease is in this country's division. Really? You're like, oh, lady, please. The real disease might, you want to call it division? Fine. The division was already always there. The primary difference is pe those of us on the political left 
decided to actually fight back, and we won't back down. We are basically standing up to our abusers, period. So when she makes this little little tear-filled statement, I feel like saying, bitch, please, talk to the hand, bye, Felicia, whatever. I can't believe anybody would believe her line of bull anymore. I'm looking forward. I wish that the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland started investigating some of these senators. They won't, but they need to. Or at the very least, somebody. Again, we can't get rid of the filibuster because of Senators Manchin and Cinema. We can't get rid of the filibuster because of Senators Manchin and Cinema. We can't have voting rights because of Senators Manchin and Cinema. It is totally disingenuous for Senator Cinema to claim she's for voting rights, but also saying that she's going to support the unconstitutional filibuster, knowing damn well that that voting rights bill will never see the light of day because the Republicans will filibuster it. So how in the hell is she for voting rights? This wholesale corruption of our government, both at the federal and at the state level, must stop. It just has to. The wholesale corruption of the legal profession, especially by corporate attorneys who basically prostitute their training for more billable hours, has to stop. The planet is dying, and these these jackasses are fiddling while Rome is burning. So with all that, I would just say the jackass of the week is shared by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. although Kirsten Cinema. I view her much more contemptuously because she thinks we're so stupid that we're going to buy her line of bullshit as she produces fake tears in front of the camera. Really, lady? Enough's enough. We have to have an end to this political corruption. We need to make sure that we elect attorney generals, especially at the state level, like Letitia James in New York State, that will go after these political criminals. We also need to make sure the Congress follows the same laws as everyone else. Right now they don't. They make themselves exempt from many of the laws they inflict on the rest of us. Democrat and Republican alike, this has to stop. They have made a mockery of the Constitution. And frankly, what the GOP, as well as Senator Sinema and, and Manchin do, they turn the Constitution into toilet paper that they wipe the shit from their asses. That's it. They shit on our Constitution. And they, want, they think we're so stupid that we will believe their line of bull. Enough's enough, people. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe a series of general strikes. Maybe we need to get more like the French and hit the streets and everything comes to a grinding halt over and over again. I suspect that's what needs to happen. 
Those in power do not relinquish power without a battle. It is what it is. Anyway, I wish I could have ended this show on a more hopeful tone, but again, I can't. I can't because once again, until we hold these crooked politicians accountable, nothing's going to change. And they are crooked. I said, now they're blatant about it. Citizens United gave them the permission slip, they think, to be open about their corruption. But Citizens United is wrong. And again, when is the, whether it's the ACLU, whatever, when are they going to wake up and realize if you want corporate personhood, that means that those same corporate persons are not entitled to have to enjoy limited liability then. That's how you defeat corporate personhood. And I will be writing about that. You can find it in BuzzFlash. I'll be talking about it again. <sighs> With that, I say good night. and huh, God bless us, except for Kirsten Cinema. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.